This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. This is Recode Media, Peter Kafka. That is me. And today we're going to talk about AI because it's been that kind of year. But first, some news. It's not bad news, but it is news. Uh, and that is, drum roll, this version of Recode Media, which I've been making since February 2016, that is nearly eight years, is coming to an end. As some of you may have seen on social media last week, I am heading over to Business Insider. We're going to blog about tech and media and business stuff. That will be fun. And the plan is to bring this podcast with a new name over to Morning Brew which, like Business Insider, is owned by Axel Springer. So that will be a change, but like I said, that's not bad. It's just a change. And for you, the people who like to listen to this podcast, really shouldn't be much of a change at all. That's because Jim Bankoff, who runs Vox Media, is letting me bring the feed for this show with me to my new home. So if you're subscribed to this show, God bless you. If you haven't subscribed to this show, you should subscribe. It's free. Anyway, regardless, if you subscribe to this show... All you got to do to listen to the new show is nothing. Sometime in January, we're going to start making new episodes and you will get those just like you get this one. You don't have to do a thing. I think over time, we might make some other changes in the show. We're going to start with a new name, then we'll tweak the format a bit, perhaps try some new stuff, but we can talk about that later. I also want to say some nice stuff about the people I'm working with right now, but I've been talking for a while, so that can wait at least one more week. Okay, back to this show, which, like I said, is about AI. First off, I'm talking to Alex Heath from The Verge. Talk about what exactly happened to OpenAI. Uh, as you'll recall, they had fired their CEO the last time we talked, and now their CEO, Sam Altman, is their CEO again. So what exactly changed? And then I talked to Danielle Coffey. She is the CEO of the News Media Alliance. That's a trade group that represents thousands of publishers, including Vox Media, trying to carve out some kind of deal with the big AI companies who are using publisher stuff, mostly without permission. Danielle Coffey and I spoke in late November before the OpenAI stuff. All of what we discussed there should still hold up today, though. Uh, meanwhile, if you're here listening to this on Wednesday, she is testifying before Congress. So you can both see and hear Danielle Coffey. Okay, let's do an actual interview. Here's me and Alex Heath. Alex Heath covers tech for The Verge. He was one of the leading reporters on the Sam Altman open AI story, which means he really needed a break, but he is back. Welcome, Alex. Thanks for talking to us. I feel honored to be one of the last. Uh, yeah, it's, it's like it's like the Layla montage and in, in, uh, in Goodfellas where <laughs> we're, we're, I'm not confusing it with uh, the Godfather. Anyway, the loose ends are getting tied up. So we're, we're going to talk. This is very meta. We said we we're going to have a meta conversation, but now it's gotten very meta. Let's talk about open AI. You were covering this minute by minute. When did you finally get to stop writing about OpenAI? I think I finally decided to take a break from reporting at like 10 p.m. the night before Thanksgiving. I think we and you all were... realized at that point that it was going to at least have a, a moment of a break for us all. 
So I should back up. The last time we talked about OpenAI is with Kevin Roos of the New York Times and I had to caveat every other sentence saying at this time as we're recording because things were moving. I think when I interviewed, when I talked to Kevin, uh, Sam Alton was out of OpenAI. If you had just ignored the story completely, that might have been one way to go, right? Because everything is kind of returned to where it was minus a couple board members. So you cover this nonstop 24 hours, essentially, for about five, six days. Um, what is the net result of what happened at OpenAI? Yeah, I think on the surface, you could say, man, you could have just closed your eyes for those five days and reopened them and everything would look the same. Mm -hmm. And on the surface, that does appear to be true. But I would actually say that there have been some pretty important changes, most notably Sam Altman and his co-founder, Greg Brockman, who were both kind of ousted, uh, were on the board of the nonprofit that controls OpenAI um, mm -hmm. before all this. And five days later, they are no longer on the board, which means they don't have a vote in kind of key governance matters, which I would say is, you know, that could change. Obviously, the new board could still hire them, um, but there's a dr pretty... But there has been a pretty, um, I would say, impactful board change as a result. It's of it's interesting because I think I think from the surface most people would say, oh, what has happened is Sam Altman won. He has more power than he had before. He was fired by this nonprofit board. That nonprofit board has essentially been fired, or the people who fired him have been pushed out. But you're saying actually it's still kind of unsettled. Yeah, very much so. Uh, there's also going to be a investigation by an outside law firm. Mm -hmm. uh, into what led to the firing, um, that the details of that are still being worked out. Um, who's going to be kind of quarterbacking that is Brett Taylor, the new lead uh, board director for OpenAI for the nonprofit. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I would push back on the narrative that Sam has actually gained power. I mean, he certainly overcame the attempted coup, but he's back with, uh, I would say, less control over the actual board that fired him because he's but, not on it. But didn't we just, and I, I don't want to get too far into the minutia of this because uh, I have some big picture questions, but but didn't he essentially prove that if he gets fired, there is no open AI because his team will come with him. So regardless of what the board structure is, he has real power. Microsoft seems to absolutely have real power that they were able to flex during this. It seems like whatever structure you're going to have, it's going to be one that de facto recognizes Sam Altman as the guy running the whole thing. Yeah, that's the inherent tension here is that there really is no company without Sam, as everyone found out over the holiday weekend. And or I guess, gosh, that time all blurs. This was leading into the holiday. Pre-holiday. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. There's no company without him. But Adam D'Angelo, who was kind of leading the charge to fire him in the negotiations with the board, is still on the board. And a key thing that Sam's camp wanted while these negotiations were, were ongoing was that everyone who fired him had to step down. And in fact, kind of the ringleader uh, did not. And also there were, you know, there was this like conversation of Sam and Greg Brockman, his co-founder, are a package deal. If they come back, they both need to be on the board. They're not on the board. And they've also agreed to, they've also agreed to, uh, to an investigation. So... Uh 
Um, certainly there's more leverage than I think the board realized, uh, on Sam's side, but I wouldn't say that it's, uh, totally fully tilted towards him. So when Sam was fired the Friday before Thanksgiving, the immediate assumption was he must have done something very bad because you don't just fire a CEO period. You certainly don't fire a CEO of an $86 billion company that's leading the open AI charge. It just doesn't happen that way. So there must be some skeleton. Then the narrative was actually there's this ongoing fight between the nonprofit board and, and their concerns about commercialization or safety and danger. And there's sort of an ideological split. Then um, after Sam Altman was reinstated, there was a story saying, um, it was a delightful sort of a, a reference to QAnon that that that, that someone that someone that basically OpenAI had had created some new powerful tech um, that was scaring people. It doesn't seem like there actually is a resolution to sort of what the fight was. I was just uh, watching Ezra Klein on on threads. He's saying actually there isn't there isn't a thing. There is no smoking gun. There's just sort of a, a fundamental sort of tension between this nonprofit and and Sam Altman who who was running the for profit version. What have you figured out about the root cause of this? I think this is a very old-fashioned human power struggle and not much else. I think, you know, in moments like these, we tend to want to assign bigger ideological, almost religious kind of uh, factions and wars to these kinds of CO power struggles, uh, whether it's like effective altruism or deceleration versus acceleration, which is this thing in the AI community about how fast should we move with this technology mm -hmm. versus wanting to be safe about it. And in reality, I think as time goes on and the details of this investigation come to light, um, I think we'll find out that this was more of uh, just kind of a classic, I mean, straight out of succession really on the HBO show, uh, human power struggle. Uh, and a lot of it had to do with the trust between Sam and the board. And if you zoom out, there is, you know, the tension there is a bit of what you were saying that Sam is the commercial side. He's the money man that happens to be controlled. And everyone forgot this in the last year that happens to be controlled by a nonprofit board with a totally different mission than shareholder value. And at the same time, like everyone involved in this decision has like little to no skin in the game, not getting paid, which is a whole nother weird part mm -hmm. of this. Um, but yeah, I think um, it wasn't one thing is what I've also heard. And that um, the board, I think, will hope to share more in the coming weeks. Um, they've certainly not said anything so far uh, on the record publicly, and that's to their detriment, I think. But I do think we'll hear more soon. So with the caveat that there's going to be an investigation, that there's still board seat shuffling and maneuvering going on, what happens to OpenAI, the company? Are, are they, is everyone there doing the same work they were doing on the, the, the Friday, uh, you know, an hour before they learned that Sam Altman was fired? Are they back to working on the same projects? Uh, yeah. Is there any kind of pause? Is there any change in what they're doing? Not on what I've heard. I mean, there's certainly a bit of like, uh, let's get our bearings here. Let's figure out this new board. I would imagine that Sam's very focused on that uh, to avoid a repeat of what just happened. But yeah, I mean, this company was moving a mile a minute. And, um, you know, Greg Brockman was posting on X that, um, you know, he was back in the office on Monday, you know, doing meetings. By the way, this is like kind of meta, but like I've, I've said this on, on some other shows, but I think it's very funny that all these OpenAI people are kind of posting all of this stuff about the saga on X and it's yes. just training data for Elon's OpenAI competitor.
yeah, I, I do want to have a Twitter discussion with you in a second. We still call it Twitter <laughs> over here on Recode Media. And there were there were a flurry of stories, I think in part because people had to figure out something to write during this, saying, ah, the OpenAI status is sort of the leader of the AI movement here is is now under pressure because this is pointing out how dangerous it is for companies to um, put all their eggs uh, in an AI basket. So if you were going to use OpenAI's models, if you're going to use ChatGPT to build something, maybe now you're going to reconsider that. That seemed awfully quick to, for people to sort of reach to that conclusion. Have you found real world examples of people saying, oh, I'm, I'm considering, um, I'm reconsidering using OpenAI as my business partner? I haven't heard anything substantial there. I do think this shows that governance matters. And what we saw was even like Microsoft, for example, was totally blindsided by this. Satya Nadella, I thought amazingly in his like kind of emergency press tour after we reported that Sam may end up going back to OpenAI, even when Microsoft was trying to hire him, Satya was saying like he'd never met the board and like he only knew Adam D'Angelo through like Silicon Valley circles. Mm-hmm. And that's just remarkable for... Uh, a company of Microsoft's size and stature, you know, betting the farm essentially on another company's tech. Uh, everyone looks at the money Microsoft put in there and thinks, oh, you know, it's they, you know, thirteen billion. That doesn't actually the money doesn't actually matter to Microsoft. Like they added, you know, uh, uh, much l- more of that in market cap <laughs> last week. Um, and actually, it's it's not cash anyway, right? It's it's, it's not cash. Little, a lot of it's it their is little, credits. It's, it's yeah. credits it's to credit, use your computers. Tranched credits for Azure. Yeah, exactly. Um, but what matters is like Microsoft obviously was so, um, uh, so motivated to link up with Sam that they didn't bother to analyze the fact that, that Sam is beholden to a board with a mission that is against a for-profit entity that Microsoft was investing into that could actually fire Sam. Uh, and everyone found that out, you know, whatever this. Right. Know, Although I think we also learned again that Microsoft has an enormous amount of power here. Like they could literally, as they, they could have rehired Sam, that, that they've, they've got it, that if Sam goes away, open AI goes away, that, that they've, you know, that they still have a lot of cards to play, but yes, um, they, they, they looked under the hood and were a little bit surprised. So governance matters, but, but everything that, that open AI was working on two weeks ago, 10 days ago, continues apace. There's no pause. Yeah, no, there's no pause uh, to my knowledge. And uh, if anything, you know, people are just kind of probably all, if I had to guess, in the OpenAI headquarters, uh, pinching each other and going, what just happened? And uh, gossiping about this coming investigation and what questions will be asked and who will be interviewed. And that's that's the next, I think, turn in the saga. Okay, so let's get meta for a second here. What is it like to report a story like this if you've you've done a bunch of, of big corporate tech convulsions in the past? This one struck me as both sort of a, a callback to, to big corporate maneuvering stories we've seen in the past, but also something that we haven't really seen before, in part because this weird structure we talked about where, where OpenAI is controlled by a nonprofit, which apparently didn't think through the, the press implications of firing your CEO on a Friday. What was it like on your end to actually report the story out? It was wild, man. I mean, yeah, I don't think anyone saw all the twists and turns. Um, you know, he gets fired. You think, oh, you know, it's going to be, we're going to the holidays. There's going to be at least a week before we get another meaningful update here. He's going to consult with his lawyers, uh, you know, and come back after Thanksgiving. And it turns out that, you know, he, his team just had this massive time pressure campaign on the board over the weekend to get him back in the company. 
And I don't even think the board expected the uh, fervor and the urgency that mm-hmm. Sam placed on them to get him back. And I think that shocked everyone. And like, then there was the turn with Microsoft where, you know, Microsoft has been scrambling all weekend trying to figure out how to salvage this. And they, you know, really needed to have a statement out for markets open on Monday. Um, that's what we kept hearing. And so Satya at like 1 a.m., I'm about to go to bed. There were multiple nights during this saga, by the way, where like Neelai Patel, who's, uh, you know, our editor-in-chief I was working with on this story and I were like, we were literally in bed and then, you know, we'd get buzzed and have to get up and like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm at home like for Thanksgiving and in my in-laws like dining room at 3.30 in the morning. It's It was a lot, but um so, the Microsoft so, turn yeah. was pretty dramatic because everyone thought Microsoft was going to try to do something. We didn't expect Satya to just say, hey, we'll just hire Sam. And then as we found out the next day, they hadn't actually hired Sam. Uh, they weren't actually sure if he was going to come over. We were being told that he didn't actually want to come over. This was just a another leverage play against the board. And so, yeah, it just quickly became this constant, like, power struggle and game of leverage that ultimately uh, resulted in them coming back. So Microsoft is this huge company, um, has a giant comms team, has multiple comms agencies. Um, there are agencies that special, there's, there are PR firms that specialize in this kind of crisis communications that usually jump in as well. And they, you know, they're obviously caught off guard by this, but they have an apparatus. Um, and you have relationships with people like that. And Eli certainly does. Um, and so they can communicate with you. Here's what we think is happening, and they can try to control the message. OpenAI has a comms team, a very small one. Uh, it's run by Steve Dowling, who used to be one of the top guys at Apple. But Actually, nothing not like anymore. Oh, is, is he, he out? I'm, I'm sorry. Yeah. So there yeah, we go. Yeah, he left. Yeah. Um, another ex-Apple uh, person, though, now. Gotcha. So OpenAI is split because they've got this nonprofit board that fired their guy. Who is communicating to you from OpenAI when there's multiple versions of that story? Yeah, we quickly realized that OpenAI, not just the comms team, but the entire kind of senior management team was flying blind, really, um, right after this happened, right after the board moved to fire Sam, and that the board didn't have a comms team. And the board wasn't, as far as I could tell, whispering to anyone in the media throughout the whole kind of series of negotiations. I think the board has realized since then that uh, that was a mistake because Mm -hmm. Sam's camp, um, you know, it's come out that he had a lot of kind of senior OG Silicon Valley people helping him uh, throughout the whole saga and um, people that know, you know, a lot of reporters. And it was very clear that, you know, that Sam's camp was, was spinning and uh, the board really lost the narrative uh, quickly uh, as a result, I think. And that was to their detriment. I mean, er- their actions were also, I mean, I want to be clear. I think ultimately the way they just handled this was to their ultimate detriment, like not them lacking spin or anything. But mm-hmm. yeah, OpenAI, you know, we, we kind of, it, it got to the point where, you know, you're supposed to do the right thing and hit up the comms team every time you publish something before and give them a chance to respond. And, you know, like by the like first or second turn of this story over the weekend, we realized like it wasn't even worth our time. Like they just don't know. Like they're just, it's like, they're it's just, like asking Twitter for comment. Yeah. It's uh, just like radio silence. And this was really a negotiation between Sam Greg Brockman, some close advisors, like a handful of people and like three people on the board and really no one else. And it quickly became three people versus the entire company. So 700 plus employees versus three board members who are not speaking publicly, 
to my knowledge, have still not um, and did not share their detailed reasoning for firing Sam, no matter how much they were pressed. You mentioned before that a lot of this played out on Twitter. Uh, the yeah. OpenAI team was 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 signaling to Sam on Twitter, and he was doing the same. I saw. I think just today he said something about uh, on Twitter, maybe maybe the day before, about how he's he's talking to Adam D'Angelo. This is also the first kind of time we've had a big tech story explode like this, sort of as Threads has come up as a legitimate uh, Twitter mm-hmm. alternative. Did you guys talk about sort of whether you wanted to publish? Thoughts, stories, um, ideas on Twitter versus threads or anywhere else? Not really. Uh, Neela and I were running on such little sleep. And like there was a there was one point where I accidentally drank like a leftover cocktail from the night before <laughs> thinking that it was water. And it was just like, you know, a leftover vodka drink from the night before. And I, I actually yeah. did that twice, uh, thinking mm-hmm. that it was water sitting on my desk. So that, if that gives you a sense of my frame of mind, we weren't really having like meta debates about like where, what platforms we should be posting on. Mm-hmm. There is this inherent tension and I've experienced this multiple times now with these really high pressure, very competitive stories where it's not just tech reporters that I know, uh, but like, you know, the national kind of media trying yep. to compete on a story where it's like, man, if you get even a a tidbit of something you want to get it out right away right and usually that lead in the past that's led to you know tweeting your scoops before they're on your site i've kind of realized and you know we try to talk about this at the verge with our team like we shouldn't be giving our work away for free on these platforms Mm -hmm. and so our thing was like uh let's not post until we have a link um and we can send people to like the full thing and even if the full thing is like a paragraph you know we're a little more bloggy here so we can we can be a little looser and get things up quick and we don't have to go through multiple editing layers and, and all that stuff. And so we were able to beat, you know, a lot of the big national papers on some of the key turns just because of the speed of kind of how we work. But yeah, it was interesting to see it play out. And what I'll note is, you know, a lot of my colleagues in the media, especially in the tech world, uh, you know, are, have been very clear that we should all stop posting on X. This was an interesting example of, you know, for some moments like these, like it's still where the action is, you know, for better or worse. Um, it was kind of impossible to ignore. Yep. Uh, you're calling it Twitter. I guess I'll call it Twitter since it's your show. But it was impossible to ignore because Sam and the entire OpenAI team was was posting on their, I mean, the whole heart campaign, the heart emoji campaign where everyone was like, you know, tweeting their solidarity with Sam was a, a tactic to show the board, you know, who would go with Sam to a new company or to Microsoft. So like if you're really trying to cover this story, you just you can't not be on there. Um, and I will say like, you know, we were doing stuff on Threads, uh, kind of in parallel. Or you know, Neilai's not really on Twitter anymore, so he was just posting on Threads. I was kind of doing dual, and Threads still, you know, it it's getting there, but it's not anywhere near what it needs to be as like a real time news platform. I mean, the algorithm just buries stuff. Um, the threading actually, ironically enough, of like posts is yep. not really great. Uh it's not very like multimedia friendly, uh, long posts, etc. I actually found in, in terms of just like getting stuff out quickly to the widest possible audience, uh X1 over the weekend. I kind of hate to say it, but um, shows, I think, how far Threads needs to go. Elon Musk won the weekend. Um, Last on this, 
a lot of times you or I will be deep into a story and, 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 and we think it's really fascinating and we're breathlessly trying to cover it. And then we meet the rest of our family, like at a Thanksgiving holiday, and they <laughs> have no idea what we do for a living and they've never heard of any of the stuff we're talking about. I got a, I got questions about Sam Altman throughout the week. Um, it felt yeah. like that broke through in some way. Did you did could you feel that either talking to actual humans, looking at traffic? Did you get a sense this story broke broke out of the tech bubble? Uh, well, traffic certainly yes, uh, but yeah, even anecdotally, um, yeah, man. I mean, my like eighty year old uncle asked me about Sam Altman um, uh, over Thanksgiving. So yeah, it definitely it definitely broke through. Um, I'm not sure why, I guess because of maybe the popularity of chat GPT, right? Um, something about but, chat GPT and, 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 um, open a, I mean, AI, I think people are vaguely interested in, even if they don't know yeah. why they are. I mean, I, no one's ever once asked me about SBF. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, not, I mean, I think soul. this also, this also speaks to like the profile of Sam Altman. Like he, he has been so aggressive in the media and getting himself out there. I can't even count how many interviews he's done, um, mm -hmm. you know, in the last year and then the Senate hearings and all that. And, uh, I mean, he really put himself out there. Um, by the way, this is like, you know, we don't have to like go more into this, but I'm inherently skeptical of executives that really, really put themselves out there. Uh, I think it's just an interesting thing to, thing to observe. But yeah, it was, I think that was part of it too. It's just like Sam kind of embracing that profile as like the face of AI. Mm -hmm. And almost, honestly, the fact that it's like, we haven't had a really juicy boardroom coup power struggle story like this at such a kind of hot company in a while. I mean, I, I, th I would say the last story like this was uber and it was a little more like by the book because it was like normal investors with like uh, obvious economic incentives like right. everyone's incentives were kind of understood you know there was the ipo and all that stuff and like this time it's like wait is this like effective altruism like none of these people are paid we don't know who these people are <laughs> like it's uh, it was just a lot weirder too. So I think right, that and that was one where I think people, I, I think normals had some vague idea at some point that because it got conflated with Trump, the that the guy who ran Uber wasn't a nice guy, or that Uber maybe wasn't a nice company. Um, but I, I know that no one would have, you know, no normal person would have told you on the weekend that they were figuring out who the next CEO was going to be. Could have told you about that, or, or would have cared. Uh, right. Whereas this one actually did. Alex Heath, so glad you covered this. So glad you found time to talk to me on one of the last episodes of Recode Media. Thanks, Peter. I'm honored. Thanks again to Alex Heath. In a minute, we're going to hear from Daniel Coffey from the News Media Alliance. First, a word from a sponsor. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. I'm here with Danielle Coffey. She is the CEO of the News Media Alliance. It's a trade publication. It's not a trade publication. It's a trade group that represents, what, a couple thousand publishers, including, I believe, Vox Media. Is that correct? That's correct. 2,200, including Vox. There we go. Welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. 
Thank you for having me, Peter, very much. Um, I have spent a bunch of time over the last year, like a lot of people, um, digging into AI and, and generative AI, upside, downside. Early on, I wrote a story, um, probably about a year ago, actually saying, who's, where's all the data going to come from and, and, and who's going to pay for it? And everyone's sort of hemmed and hawed. And that conversation has gotten louder and louder. You were part of that conversation. So I wanted to chat with you about the publisher perspective on generative AI. You guys have put out a, a white paper um, arguing essentially that, hey, all the stuff that's going into the open AIs and, and, and bards of the world, that comes from our members. That comes from the New York Times. It comes from Vox. And we haven't had a say in that. And we should. And we should get paid for it. Am I, am I summing up the white paper correctly? I actually like the way you just put that because it's like I just envisioned eating a lot of food or drinking a lot of drink. And then you get the bill at the end and you said, hmm, wait a second, who's going to pay for all this? And in our case, it's our quality content that's um, crawled and then used in the data sets that are then, you know, result in the outputs that's exciting. But it comes from somewhere in the first place where we've invested and just aren't getting a return. So we're going to let you make your case, and then I've got some questions. Sure. But maybe I can help you make the case by prompting some questions to you. So when I started looking into this, I, I called people at the open AIs of the world and said, hey, are you paying for any of this data? And they, they did hemmed and hawed, and in some cases, they do have deals. Like open AI has got a deal with Shutterstock, and I think they now have a deal with the AP. Um, and essentially, they don't have deals with lots of other folks. And their argument more or less was, you don't need a license to go into the library and read a lot of books and get smarter and then use your accumulated knowledge to to make cool things. So why does that analogy not hold up from your perspective? Well, I think that you're right. There's been there's been uh, a couple of deals struck. And I think that there's conversations ongoing. And uh, if you can believe it, I'm optimistic that I think they're going to do the right thing. I think that the importance that was demonstrated in our white paper that you mentioned shows that they rely on us and they need us. So they kind of have to do the right thing. And and I do think they're good actors and and they, you know, are respecting our copyrights, but they want to continue to use the quality content because it makes their it makes their products work. Your analogy, I would use a different analogy. They they take an expressive, and this was in the Warhol case. Remember the Supreme Court case where you have the um, you have the silk screen um, that was used. There was an original uh, in, picture taken. Vanity Fair and correct, yep. exactly. There's a very the good thing, daily episode about this that came out last spring. Oh, okay. I'll listen to it. Um, so in that case, I think it's more analogous because you have an original expressive work that that's you know copyright protected and it's used to make another expressive work and so what the court looks at is does it serve the same purpose or is it transformative and in that case what they found is that it serves the same purpose and use the fair use factors to determine whether there's a market harm in our case there's a significant market harm so will that book in your analogy ever be read no and so if the expressive work replaces the original work unlawfully without permission and without compensation, then that's not a fair use. So the argument is if I go into uh, chat GPT made by OpenAI and give it some query and it, it's spitting back work that it has lifted from Vox and the New York Times and you're not and I, in your paper, you say it's not just that they're taking information they gleaned from there. They're like taking entire passages wholesale. That's correct. And we saw in the outputs that verbatim wholesale. If if 
eventually they go, oh, well, that's not good. We should just like any kid copying and plagiarizing, right? We should, we should, okay. we should swap some words out so it looks a little different. That seems like a relatively trivial thing to do. Does that solve the problem? If they take a Peter Kafka article and present all the same information, but take out some of my lovely verbiage and and swap some words around, it's all the same stuff. It's just written differently. Is that is that okay? Oh, sure. I mean, what you're saying is, um, let's say it's a summary. And let's say it's another version or, or actually another another instance is with chat GPT and you put you get an output and it rewrites something, a marketing plan, whatever it might be from the original marketing plan. And that's when you find that the output may not be um, it would still it would still potentially replace and create the market harm, but um, it would not be the verbatim copying that we see that you saw in the white paper. And that was where the red was highlighted, where it was the exact article, the exact usage. But if you can't get some of the same conclusions, some of the same express facts from the expressive work that you're identifying. So for example, local news is one of the segments of the industry that we represent, right? And with local news, there's only going to be one local paper in, in Ohio, let's say it's Cleveland, let's say it's the Cleveland Plain Dealer mm -hmm. that, that, that reports on a train crash. And so that, that never would have been uncovered and reported on in the first place if not for the Cleveland Plain Dealer digitizing their newspaper from 100 years ago, putting it in their archives, and then having it be crawled by this data set that then, you know, lifts, uplifts it and presents you. Maybe not the exact same words, but the same expressive uh, work and the answer to your question, it wouldn't exist if they didn't crawl us in the first place. A lot of this reminds me of, of Wikipedia. It's, it's happening, obviously, at a much greater scale and speed. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, if I went to look for that that information about that plane crash in, in Cleveland in 1956, there might be a Wikipedia summary of it. It may cite the Cleveland Plain Dealer or whatever source there was, but I, I could certainly get a lot of information or theoretically get a lot of information about that. Never visit the Cleveland Plain Dealer. I've never once heard news publishers complain about Wikipedia. What's the difference? Sure, there's always going to be, um, and we even attribute, you know, we cite each other in our mm -hmm. industry. You know that. We, we cite each other. So you're never going to be able to get around that. What we're talking about is the massive droves of, of data that's crawled from us and that's, that's crawled and that's used in these data sets on a massive scale. And that's reproduced and the retention, there's a retention of a copy. So that's, that's kind of the box you have to check. Did I retain it? Did I keep it? And we proved that they did. And then it travels through their, their data sets and then goes into output. And then that's produced again on a massive scale. So the, the one-offs we have, we already have that, you know, attributions and we cite to others. But what we're talking about is, is the infringement of our copyright protection. And, and what you're talking about, a one-off, isn't the same mass scale market harm infringement that we're talking about. Um, you have set this up clearly as, look, this we got a pretty good court case here. We could, if, if we bring you guys to court, presumably you don't want a court case. Presumably you don't want to be in court for years and years. You never know what's going to happen. There'll be appeals, et cetera. What, what do you want out of the open AIs and bars, et cetera, of the world? So I actually think, like I said, I think that there's good actors in this space. Like I said, that there's um, there's a premium associated with our content. That was, again, again, that was proven in our white paper that they rely on us. They need us. And I think that there's good actors. And, you know, you heard um, Satya Nadell, you heard uh, Sam Altman, you've heard others recognize that value. So I do think that there's, and I'm optimistic that there's there there's an ability for them to come 
to the table and have discussions in a myriad of ways, whether it's commercial deals, licensing, what have you. And I, I think that's a possibility up to a certain extent where it's not. That's when, you know, we, you know, have to escalate on our side. But but it hasn't come to that yet because right. we're, we're in conversations. We're talking. And, we're and talking. The, and the individual <laughs> publishers are talking as well. So right, it's, there's right. the, the, the trade group is talking, but also the Times is having separate conversations, et cetera. Um, right. You've heard the word billions thrown around as, as compensation. Is What's the ideal solution for you? Is it these X number of, of, of engines, AI engines and their owners write us a one-time check for billions of dollars and we sort of walk away? Is it a license where there's recurring revenue? Is it based on usage? What's, what's the optimal solution for you guys? Well, on the first part, when you said, uh, what are we talking here? It's the amounts that we're talking could be, um, let me put it this way. I put billions in something that our membership was looking at and somebody crossed it out and said, no, it's bigger. And I was trying to think, okay, trillions, what are we talking here? And I think the reason why that, that actually is sound, it doesn't, you know, it, it actually makes sense is because if you think about the outputs replacing our entire industry, we're a $40 billion industry. So that actually makes sense. Not quite a trillion, but you know mm-hmm. it's it's significant. And how you value from the input side, because when you take the reproduction, could be different than what we were just talking about the output side, as in replacing our industry, kind of a thing. When you get the query, so the amount is um, is is to be determined, and and we're looking at the now. There's also statutory damages, so I think this could be significant for our industry. Meanwhile. This is going to continue. Sachi Nadella mm-hmm. and Sam Altman say this is important. But meanwhile, they're presumably ingesting your stuff. Meanwhile, people are using that stuff to replace a New York Times or, or Vox visit. I'm wondering, you know, they they have a lot of time and a lot of money. Um, they can they can extend these conversations for a long time. They can you can go to court. That can go for a long time. Um, aren't you under pressure to get to something quickly? Because as you probably know. The media business is not in great shape. News is even harder. I would assume their logic is these guys need something fast and we will cut them a check that will seem like a lot of money, but in the end won't mean anything to us. And then we can walk away and we can sort of be done. We see this a lot with, you know, the NFL players uh, settling their concussion lawsuits, uh, et cetera. Or even you could argue, you know, Facebook paying off publishers a very small amount of money uh, to make them sort of stop complaining that Facebook isn't paying them. And then meanwhile, they can move on. How do you handle the pressure on your side to get something done quickly because this stuff is going to move very fast? And also to your um, to address your previous question, is this a one time? What would a payment look like and, and when do we need it? Um, I just saw something just today. I want to say one third of newspapers are going to close, you know, within the next few years. And yep. so, so the answer, when do we need this yesterday? You yep. know? Um, so, and that's why we have, we've been working for a few years now on legislation to compensate us generally. It's passed around the world. We're waiting for the U S to do the same. And that's, that's general compensation, but this is an ex- exacerbation of an existing problem. And, and would a one-time payment, especially in the case of AI, we have, we have solid legal copyright protections, which means that we have the ability, we have a, we have the right to demand payment. And, and a one-off comp, one-off, you know, payment for, it won't sustain, we have a sustainable right. We have a value that's owed to us, and that's over the period of time of the life of the of the existence of the work, not a one-time payment. Uh, these models will continue to train themselves. They will, you know, every few years, I guess, they retrain themselves, maybe even more frequently lately. 
Um, so we do have that right to payment today. Where when it comes into play is like you said, whether or not they'll actually come to the table, and to the extent that the law is needed to get them to come to the table, uh, a rather enforcement of the law is is needed to get them to come to the table. That's that's where we need to step up um, our efforts when it comes to that time. News media has been fighting with digital with 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 digital technology and and the the big purveyors of it for decades now. Um, I would argue it's been sort of a losing battle. Um, sometimes it's just, you know, watching classifieds just disappear to uh, Yahoo and Craigslist. Um, long-running legal battle over Google and links and what is owed to the publishers. That's still ongoing, although it seems mostly settled. Um, and then more recently, you know, Facebook, like I mentioned before, um, has agreed to make some payments. And in some cases, there's been laws, sort of uh, been legal fights in, in Australia and Canada. Overall, how has that informed, how has that history of struggle and mostly being on the losing side informed what you guys are doing this time around? Um, I would also emphasize a long stream of court cases over mm-hmm. the last decade that were not in our favor. So, and, yes. and I do see the trajectory turning. You're right that there have been some decisions, especially around the world, going in the right direction. And the reason why I see that continuing and why I'm optimistic about getting uh, compensated for the value of our content is, again, the importance of what we provide to these technologies. As much as we embrace them, adapt, and we we use them in our own newsroom um, and creative content process, they need us. And and I mean it when I say that, like the elections are coming up, for example. Mm-hmm. They need reliable quality information during an election period where you're going to have even more, especially with AI, misinformation. And the standard of care, the consumers are going to demand some change. And, and that's us. We're the we're the antithesis to, to, to misinformation. So the reliance on us and lawmakers enforcing that reliance on us and, and you know, uh, changing that landscape is, is what I see, uh, what I, I am optimistic. Can I, I'll be devil's advocate and also kind sure. of what I believe. Um, you know, the idea that the platforms need us is something we've heard year after year and almost always turns out to be wrong, right? That's the history of a lot of the uh, my company and and. and BuzzFeed, Vice, et cetera, all sort of bet on the platforms needing them. But it goes beyond that. Um, and inevitably, the platforms sort of say, we don't really need you nearly as much as you think. Um, news is not that important to us. Um, you know, I, I think politically, on top of that, the, the misinformation is a pretty fraught argument. There's a lot of people who say, yes, it, it, misinformation is a real problem. Other folks don't think it's a problem at all. They have other issues. Um, I, I, I do wonder if just saying, look, they have to have us is going to be a problem for you guys because they could turn around and say, nope, we can we can substitute or in the case of what we've seen, Facebook, et cetera, dudes just say, we're just going to just not have links to news. We're not going to uh, recite news. How? how oh, I actually how I actually think you're scenario? absolutely correct. I don't think they need us. I think they generate a ton of revenue off of us. But I don't think they need us. I think consumers need us. Mm-hmm. I think the world needs us. I think that in order to have a standard mm-hmm. of quality. Um, that people want and need and demand and to have engagement on their platforms that then generates them revenue. I think that's, and, and we're independent from that because our relationship is with the readers. That's what, that's what we've always had, that, that close, intimate relationship. Mm-hmm. I mean, they read our content. They're, the platforms are the conduit, but it's still our content that they're reading. So we're the ones with the relationships. People want to continue that relationships. The tech platforms happen to be in between that relationship and they get a ton of money off of us. 
but do they do they need us? Do they wish they didn't need us? I I bet a, I'll bet my left arm that they wish they that we would stop causing you know problems that that you know they they find themselves in perplexing situations, especially with uh, politics and elections and and so on and so forth. And and they find themselves in in the hot seat, but we've always been in the hot seat. We've always taken liability for our content because our readers just won't read us if if we don't have that credibility. And we can also get sued. So we're used to this. They're not. And and do, do they wish they didn't have that headache? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Speaking of politics, uh, the Biden White House put out executive order on AI recently. Did they address uh, they did. copyright? They did. They, they identified in this, in um, four areas that we were interested in. Copyright was one of them. They asked the copyright to come out with their uh, proposal, work with, I believe they wanted them to work with USPTO as well, which we support within 200. Yep, yep, yep. Sorry. Um, within office. 270 days, so on and so forth. So with the copyright, and, and we've been working with the clo- closely with the copyright office, so they're doing their job. We believe that it'll come out in, in the right place. Um, among other uh, parts of the eight-part proposal, we supported four of them. So, but are, is the Biden White House saying, hey, we agree with news publishers, they deserve to be compensated for the use of this data? Are they that explicit? So are when they it saying, comes to, hey, you guys I mean, should also go you talk could ask this. us, are we looking for any copyright legislation, you know, even more with the, that has even more teeth than than an executive order, which is which is not mm-hmm. binding, which is not a uh, law? Um, we actually right. believe we have copyright protections today. We absolutely have sufficient copyright protections. We have an exclusive right. That's clear as can be in the Copyright Act. So, so you don't feel you need legislation or or a, a thumb on the scale from the White House or anybody else to. Get I think you they already do. The in a previous executive you. order, they were explicitly clear that the platforms that we need to. Um, it was another executive order again, not by not a power of law, but it did say that the tech platforms have. Um, you know, uh, an anti-competitive practices over news publishers, and that needs to be addressed. And and therefore, which is why we see the FTC and DOJ doing everything and why there's litigation pending and so forth. So we do feel we have the support of government. Absolutely. It's a a hard one to figure out, right? Because um, sometimes uh, politicians, legislatures, lawmakers, very supportive of, of news media. Oftentimes, they're a punching bag. Um, technology is now often a punching bag. I'm trying to figure out who would have, I don't know, more or less support uh, among lawmakers. They will ne- that that game, not game. That relationship between us and government will never end. It's been around since the founding fathers. Jefferson, who hated us, said, you know, if I were to have government without newspapers or newspapers without government, I would take the latter. So he knows we're necessary. So that's who needs us. That society needs us. Government people need us. They know that. They don't like us always. (laughs) And that's okay. That's okay. We're doing our job, Mm -hmm. especially when it comes to being a watchdog, which is why you're right. No, they they don't always love us, but they do need us. Daniel Coffey, this was great. This is a heady thing. um, And it's going to go on for, I'm assuming, years. Thanks for coming on. Thanks again to Daniel Coffey. Thanks again to Alex Heath. Thanks again to our advertisers bring this show to you for free and they've been doing it for nearly eight years god bless advertisers 
Thanks again to Travis, Jelani, Jolie, all those people who help make the show. We're going to talk more about them next week. We've got at least one more episode to go. This is Recode Media. See you soon. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a PropGPod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropGPod wherever you get your podcasts.